When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth. And I'm Sam Abu Al Samad. So, after last week when Casey List told me that I didn't sound good, and I assured him, no, no, I'm on a different mic and I sound excellent, and then I listened to my track from last week and was less than pleased, I have changed my setup in honor of Casey. <laughs> so, I hope Thank I sound you, better. Yeah. I hope I sound better this week. Well, you certainly sound better in my headphones right now. Well, fantastic. Uh, The voices in my head sound great, too. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so we are up to episode 58 of Wheel Bearings. And so uh, we're recording this on a Friday night. It's been a little tough schedule-wise, so I'm I'm sorry. But we'll get our act together a little bit more. Um, But first, let's talk about... keep saying that, and eventually it might happen. I mean... (laughs) You know, every week has been a week. And over the last couple of weeks, I've been... They usually are. Yeah. I've been um, trying to pull together a shoot for some some commercials I wrote. And uh, I'm going into it a little loose. Uh, so it's been, it's been a learning experience. But now I, I know a lot about <laughs> Navy uniforms. And I... Probably way more than you ever wanted to. I, yeah. Well, yes and no. Um, I promise this is my solemn pledge to never ever 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 write anything that is a military scenario without having an advisor like from the (laughs) (laughs) get-go um because it's very specific and it's hugely disrespectful when you're trying to speak to those you know people who who had served and portray their world without actually being able to portray their world it's like if um you watch a movie and they're they're showing like how how cars are engineered or something right and you just look at it and you're oh, like oh God. that's nonsense I, 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 I simply cannot watch stuff like that right i do the same thing when they show like pieces of movies about like recording studios and stuff i'm like i, I got the mic backwards <laughs> you know like uh so um yeah it's been a been a learning curve and i'm sorry i've been a little fried and out of it but uh yeah um every now and then though it's it's good because i'll leave work and i'll put on the the playlist the spotify playlist that i made that have you have you listened to it i keep adding to it you should listen to it (laughs) i'm assuming this silence means yeah anyway 
Uh, let's well, actually, the, the silence is because your voice dropped out for a moment there. I didn't hear oh. that last statement. That, after Spotify playlist, the rest of it was blank, but I'll catch up on it later. Okay. All right. I keep adding to it. I, I added some some fun things. Uh, anyway, um, let's talk about what we're driving because uh, we've got kind of a yin-yang thing going on with the cars this week. You could say that. Um, you, you have been in the Trackhawk and that's far more exciting. So let's talk about that first. Yeah, so I I spent a week with the uh, Jeep Grand Cherokee Trackhawk. Um, just you know, as all the that's that big snowfall that we got that grounded mostly grounded the uh, Julia Quadrifoglio I had, um, and uh, then the Trackhawk showed up, and man, is that thing bonkers! Was um, it everything you hoped it would be? I'm not sure what I hoped it to be. Um, <laughs> I mean, I I knew it was going to be stupid fast. Um, and loud and, um, but it's, it's, I'm, I'm very conflicted, you know, I started writing up a review of this thing and I started thinking back to, you know, when I first got into cars, uh, you know, when I was in the late seventies, you know, when I was about 10, 11 years old and one of the first car magazines I ever picked up was a copy of road and track. And it had, uh, they had a review of the Ferrari 308 GTS oh. and, uh, you know, it was on the, it was on the cover and I went back and double checked the specs and, you know, this thing has like, uh, 240 horsepower or something, you know, from its three liter V8, you know, in 1978, which, you know, at that time that was a lot of power. And it, it got from zero to 60 in a screaming seven seconds or so. Right. Um, you know, and you know, at, at that time, you know, this was at the height of the Malays era. That was pretty impressive performance. Yeah. Um, this Jeep, uh, you know, with its four wheel drive and, or all wheel drive, uh, and it weighs about two, probably two and a half times as much as that Ferrari did. Um, and it gets from zero to 60 in about half that time. Yeah. Well, but to be fair. It's supercharger probably takes as much horsepower to turn and probably displaces more. (laughs) Yeah. But even, even, uh, even, even after that, even, you know, even when you subtract that off, you know, you're still getting a net 707 horsepower from the supercharged Hemi V8 and 645 foot pounds of torque. And this Jeep, you know, weighs 5,500 pounds. You know, it's it's just it's just nuts that this thing even exists. And, you know, the thing is, this is far from the only, you know, really high performance SUV. And, you know, again, you know, thinking back, you know, over over my time with cars, you know, it was kind of like in the early 90s, you know, was one of the first, you know, sort of semi high performance SUVs. You know, and that was when the the GMC Cyclone and then the Typhoon came out. You know, that had a turbocharged 4.3 liter V6. Well, and the, and you remember how fast that everybody thought that thing was? And but it was. It was, was quick yeah, as well, yeah. a bastard. It was a. It oh, was yeah. fat. It, just bonkers but it, but for the time. It, it was great in a straight line, but it had terrible brakes. Yeah. Um, well, it didn't. It didn't handle. You know, at all. You know, couldn't couldn't turn, couldn't go around corners very well. Couldn't stop. It was also, it could, yeah, it could, it could accelerate really fast. It was very short. Um, the, yes. the the blazer because it was the S10, so that didn't help it in handling. And yeah, I mean, it, it, I'm surprised that ever got built. And the Cyclone, I think I remember uh, with your Ferrari comparison. I remember when the Cyclone came out in like '91. 
It was on the cover of Car and Driver. Uh, and, yeah, and, I think and, they did a. I think they did a Ferrari comparison right. with it. I think it was the 348, which was sort of the spiritual yeah. successor of the the um, the 308. But so yes, like the 308 gets its doors blown off like by a Camry today. But there is nothing on the road that is as exotic as that Ferrari was. Now I don't. I I, no, no, that's, I that's guess that's not true. true. But I don't know. Well, no, I I, I think you know if you if you look at it. You know, in the in the context of its time, you know, it it was it was very exotic. And, you know, there were probably a lot fewer of them made mm. than, you know, the the high volume Ferraris today. You know, Ferrari makes more vehicles today than they ever did. But, you know, the, the amazing thing is you look at this Jeep, you know, it, and you look at, you look at it and, you know, until you get up close you know, and you look at the hood and you see the vents in the hood, you know, and aside from the big wheels, it doesn't actually look particularly crazy. It doesn't look that radical. You know, it's got tw- it's riding on twenty inch wheels, but a lot of Grand Cherokees ride on twenty inch yeah, wheels. All the all the limiteds, <laughs> limited yeah. on up, like the limited so, the overland. You know, I mean, it, it looks doesn't look that different from any other run of the mill Grand Cherokee until you open the hood and you see this enormous supercharger sitting on top of this Hemi V eight. Isn't this? It's yeah. so good, and it's orange. And, then, and then you get in and you fire it up. And you hear that sound. Oh. You know, the, the, the thing I love about you know, the thing I'm really going to miss, you know, as we get to all electric cars is there's there's something visceral about the sound of a big V8 engine. Yeah. You know, and, you know, I've, I've heard, you know, Ferrari V8 engines, you know, high, high revving, you know, high performance flat plane crank V8s. And and I love those, too. But there's there's something altogether different about a big American V8 and this this thing really has it and then you layer the the sound of the supercharger the whine of the supercharger on top of that and uh, and then you you realize that this thing has six piston Brembo calipers on the front four piston calipers on the rear you know it's got big high performance tires it can actually go around corners and it can tow 7200 pounds <laughs> and it's like I like that one the best. That's just absurd. What, what is this? You know, I mean, it's, yeah. it's just, it's insane. You know, how can this thing exist? You know, and it's, you know, it, it's just, it's amazing. It, it's, and, you know, and I you remember, can remote start I remember, it. Dri- I remember driving the Cyclone back, you know, back in the day, you know, it, when it first came out, I was still working at GM, you know, it was my first job out of college and I was working at the Milford Proving Grounds. <laughs> and and they uh the, somebody from GMC brought one over to our garage uh and you know I got to take it for a little drive you know and it was it was really crazy fast in a straight line but like I said the brakes were terrible you know and it had horrible ride quality uh you know over, over any kind of bumpy roads you know the thing would just bounce all over the place with those with the leaf spring rear suspension and the really stiffly sprung you know, front coil, uh, double wishbone fronts, the, the Jeep, you know, in spite of, you know, r- having all that weight riding on these big wheels, big, heavy wheels, uh, is actually, you know, right now here in Michigan, our roads are just in an atrocious condition, you know, coming out of a pretty brutal winter, you know, we've got these massive potholes and, you know, it actually was pretty comfortable to drive. You know, it it wasn't it wasn't terrible at all, you know, because it's got that, um, you know, fully independent suspension, you know, same as what's on the Durango that we talked about a few weeks ago. So 
it's a remarkably livable vehicle. Does it have the air suspension as well in the track? No, no, uh, no, no air suspension. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, it, the, the one I was driving was on, um, uh, Pirelli Scorpion Verde, uh, all season tires. Um, and then the, the optional tires, a, a P zero, um, uh, which is a summer tire, but for the winter, they put the, the Scorpions on there. And, you know, it's a 295, 45, 20. <laughs> it's tire. such a big tire. <laughs> you know? And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I did a, I did a couple of acceleration runs. They've got the performance pages mode in the mm-hmm. instrument cluster, you know, so you can record your acceleration and, and braking and stuff. And yeah, the, on, on cold, wet pavement on those, uh, Scorpion Verdes, it went from zero to 60 in about 3.8 seconds. That's bonkers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, that the, the only thing you don't want to think about with this thing is the, um, uh, uh, the fuel economy. Well, what, um, so what were you getting about good eight, nine? Sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's overall for the week. I think I, I averaged about 11. <laughs> I, I will say that I'm so glad that the Hellcat engine exists and it's so hard to keep your foot out of it because it sounds oh, so good. I don't even care about like I would just let it wind up in, in first and second gear when I when I had the Hellcat charger because it it just sounded so good. I didn't care about using all the power because it's, it's it can it's kind of terrifying. It's so much power. You have to be pretty careful with it. Yeah, well, and that's that's the thing with the Jeep because it's the only Hellcat vehicle that actually has all wheel drive. So it, it's it's you know in spite of being heavier than the uh, the Challengers and Chargers. Um, it's, it's actually the quickest because it can actually put the power to the ground better than the others. And, uh, you know, it, so it's, it's actually usable and it, you know, it won't spin around on a dime like the others will. <laughs> yeah, no, it'll, it'll fling itself off the road. Cause it's got that high center of gravity. I, th- these are going to get crashed. There's going to be just a oh, certain yeah. proportion of them that just gets wrecked. And apparently there's a bunch that gets stolen and stripped too. So. I yeah, mean, that would surprise me. You know you've done something right when <laughs> your car is just a high theft vehicle. It's that desirable. Um Yeah, and it's 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 also uh not uh not inexpensive. You know, the the one I had, I think base price is uh about eighty eight thousand dollars. The one I had with just a couple options on it was uh ninety one thousand dollars. That's a uh, which is the, the most expensive Jeep I've ever driven. Sure, but by a long shot. What I don't really think there's anything that competes with it well no that's not true i guess there's there's uh, the amg like G classes GTS. you know cayenne gts uh maybe uh an amg um gle 40 or 63 uh something like that um or the uh the bmw x5m you know it's interesting that the gle is like that's like the mercedes take on the same ingredients yeah yeah i mean the the gle uh, you know, has this, you know, it's, it's got its roots back from one of the last Daimler Chrysler projects before they split, you know, just as the Durango and, and Grand Cherokee do. Uh, so it's the same basic platform. Yeah. I think even the, the, like the rear lower control arms are very, very, if not the, if not the same, they're so similar that like, that's the tell I look and I try to figure out what's, cause sometimes you can't tell which Mercedes you're behind cause they're, they all look very much the same and they've played around with the badging so much. I don't know what I'm looking at sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> so you look at the rear control arms and you go, Oh, okay. That's the, so 
I, I just look, you know, just check the uh, the BMW site. The X5M currently starts at one hundred and one thousand seven hundred dollars. Yeah, and the, so, the Trackhawk so smokes it. Yeah, this is ten grand <laughs> cheaper, right? And it's it's absolutely faster. You know, it's I think you know it's the fastest internal combustion SUV you can get right now. I I, I think though, being fast like that's certainly the Trackhawk's claim to fame, but it's also it's just a good luxury SUV at that point too, right? Oh, yeah, it's really nice. Yeah, you know, it's really well appointed inside. You know, nice leather and, and Alcantara trim and um you know it's got all the all the features you want. Uh, you know, and like I said, it's it's a very it's a surprisingly livable vehicle for something with an engine called a Hellcat. I I I how can you not adore that? How can you not just be like that's that's perfect. You know, I, it's I'm torn. You know, it's like as as an enthusiast, I love the fact that it exists. But, uh, you know, as uh, someone who tries to be reasonably rational from time to time, I'm it's like, why does this exist? It's it's insane. Well, what would you prefer it to be? I don't know. I, I honestly I think that it probably wasn't that expensive for them to do. Oh, no, I'm sure it was not at all. I mean, you know, once you've engineered the engine, you know, for the Challenger, you know, it's no big deal to drop it in a few other platforms. Um, and, you know, they already had the uh, Grand Cherokee SRT anyway. So, you know, they already had a lot of beefed up parts. You know, most of the, the you know, things like the brakes and everything are, are off the shelf parts that, that you're going to get from, uh, you know, from your various suppliers, you know. You know, six piston Brembos are, you know, no big deal. Everybody's got those these days. So that's, you know, it's nothing wrong. You know, people, if you're going to put, if people are going to buy it, you know, somebody's going to build it. Yeah. I, I don't have any problem with that. I'm glad that it exists, even if I'm never going to be able to, to purchase one. Um, and I guess that's not true. I, I do wonder what, what these are going to look like on the used market too. Um, but yeah, it's just, an, it's an amazing time. And I, I had this reaction to the CTSV as well. Uh, not this generation, but the last generation, the fact that you have, you have a vehicle with such elevated performance, you still like on a cold day, you can just hit the button a couple of times and remote start it in your driveway. Yeah. Like, like something that powerful, the, the, you know, the old 426 street Hemi was, not like it, that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was completely unusable in anything but ideal conditions. You know, uh, I mean, half the time, you know, those old engines, you know, would you know, you'd get vapor lock in the summertime. You know, they'd flood in the wintertime. Uh, you know, it, it, they they certainly couldn't corner or break. Um, you know, they they were basically completely useless except on a drag strip. You know, which reminds me of some other particularly fast cars that are available even today, but that's a whole other issue. Um, <laughs> you know, the nerve, you know, the, the grand, you know, the track Hawk is, is not quite as quick as uh, a model X, you know, P 100 D. Uh, but you know, even, even if it was, you know, four and a half seconds, zero to 16, you know, it wouldn't matter. I mean, it's, it's still, you know, there, there's something about it that, just appeals to the enthusiast in me. And yes, you know, I, I acknowledge that it's, you know, stupid and, you know, it, it's killing the planet and all this other stuff, but you know, eh, there's you a know, sometimes lot. Sometimes you just got to be irrational. 
there's a lot of arguments you can you can jam into that whole killing the planet business. Um, well, I know we're not killing the planet; we're just killing ourselves. I, yeah, but not only that, like automotive the will production. Be here long after we're extinct, so yeah, I'm not worried about the. I'm not worried about the planet. I'm, I'm, I'm worried, worried about, about us. Yeah, habitable <laughs> environment for us. Um, but it, automotive production of any kind of propulsion system is is going to have some kind of footprint. Yeah, uh, that's absolutely true. So, uh, you know, you kind of you're, you're trading, you're you're making that that those trade offs. That's it's a sort of like classical engineering problem to a certain degree. <laughs> like, where do we want the pollution? At what point do we put it into this? You know, into the whole chain and what? It's it's fascinating. That's that's a topic for another podcast. Um. What about you? What did you, uh, what did you drive? Yeah, I was going to say, speaking of another topic, uh, <laughs> while you were burning up everybody's gas, I was conserving. I had the Hyundai Ionic uh, plug-in, which um, this is my first time with the, the plug-in Ionic, uh, which I did not get the chance to plug in. So I'm, I'm sorry, I failed. I don't have a garage and I didn't want to be... You st- have an extension cord. You yeah, house, and a, well... A plug in the outside of your house, right? I, I do not have a functioning plug on the outside of the house for whatever really? reason. Um, every year, it seems I have to replace the, the plug because for whatever reason, it it's a GFCI and it's it just it stops being able to be reset. So I'm going to have to reseal the box a little better. I think water gets in there and then it just decides it won't reset so when I, once i replace the fixture it's fine so till the next time um but also it was like raining and wet and whatever so i have a lot of excuses uh but i did experience the ionic plug-in which is nice because it, it does all the things that the ionic hybrid does but it also has some storage so y- you can use the pure electric mode when you uh when it when it makes the most sense um, you can schedule its charging. Uh, I think it does all of the things that I think a modern uh, PHEV or EV should. You know, you can really smartly use the energy that it has, either gas engine or electric propulsion. So, uh, you know, the Ionic is a really, really stiff competitor for the Prius. I don't know how it's selling. But it's it's a lot more compelling. At least I find it more compelling. Well, it's 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 not selling. It's interesting that the the Ionic is actually not selling as well as the Prius is, but um, its uh, its platform mate, the Kia Niro, is actually selling a lot better. Um, you know, they they sell about um, about two and a half to three times as many Niros uh, a month as they do Ionics. Um, yeah, and the the only difference between the two is the Nero has a sort of a tall wagon sort of pseudo crossover body style, whereas the Ionic, you know, is this uh, very Prius like, you know, five door fastback hatchback, um, and you know that's that's literally the only difference between those two vehicles, and you know it's you know clearly the you know the American market has spoken, and they they definitely prefer the 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 Nero over the Ionic. Yeah, and that's okay. I mean, the Nero has a little bit more distinctive look, and I think it's actually a little bit more within the vanguard of the times right now, where everybody's a little nuts for crossovers. Um, so it's just sort of the the right shape at the right time. 
regardless of what's underneath it. Um, yeah, 2017, they, uh, Kia sold 27,000 Neros, and uh, Hyundai sold a little less than 11,000 Ionic. Wow, that's not uh, that many, though. That's... And they, they sold about, uh, let's see, that's the Sonata. Um, uh, let's see. I'm just I'm looking at hybridcars.com. The uh, Prius uh, sold sixty five thousand last year. That's is that down from a bit? I think there was. Oh yeah, yeah. They, it it peaked uh, in 2016. It sold uh, just shy of a hundred thousand, and so it dropped by thirty three percent last year. Wow, that's that's no joke. I mean, what's go what's going on with that? There's a story there. Well, I mean, hybrids in general are down, but particularly the Prius, the current generation Prius is not, not done especially well. Although sales of the Prius plug-in or the Prius prime yeah. are up significantly over the previous generation, but still it's, it's not, uh, it's not great. I did like the Prius prime. I actually liked it a lot. I, I preferred it to the regular Prius. Um, they are kind of, they're kind of ugly, <laughs> which they, doesn't help. Yeah, well, they sold. They sold, and I think that's that's one of the things that has hurt the Prius this this generation is uh, people are not particularly enamored of the design. They yeah. sold. They sold twenty one thousand Prius Primes last year. How many? Twenty three. Twenty one thousand. Twenty one. So yeah. so that so they they've broken it out. Prius, Prius, like that's just the Prius. That's not the Prius Prime. Yeah, the 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 regular Prius, the not the reg, just the regular hybrid Prius. Was sixty five thousand six hundred last last year, and then just shy of twenty one thousand Prius primes. So that's like eighty six thousand cars altogether. That's not often as much as as it seems at first. That's not that's not too bad. Yeah, it's it, it's it's down, but it's not you know. So there's been a definite shift. Yeah, towards the prime. Well, and the uh, price the the price of fuel is is also down. So. When that spikes back up, I'm sure we'll see the numbers shift again. Um, you know, it, it sounds like the Prius still has a lock sort of on the the hybrid sedan market in that sense. It's, you know, it's a, it's a recognizable brand now. They they were one of the first and then they very aggressively got their message out there. And it's a good car. Yeah, well, the I think the other thing that has hurt the Prius sales is, you know, now you've got the RAV4 hybrid. They sold 51,000 of those last year. So that took a lot of sales away from Prius. Um, you know, the uh, um, Ford Fusion Hybrid's actually also done pretty well. It, it did 57,000 last year. So it was the third best selling wow. hybrid. I and See, I thought that had just sort of like melted away into obscurity. That's no, interesting. No, it, it, it actually, it, uh, the, the Fusion Hybrid's been doing pretty well. Huh. Must be C-Max somewhere else. kind of kind of went away but yeah i mean the c-max they they screwed that one up <laughs> yeah it's 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 had some issues yeah and it, it was expensive and just yeah but the the ionic to get back to everybody who wants to oh, know yeah. what it's like um i think the reason why i like it more than uh the prius is that it, it's just more of a regular car yeah i mean it has some of that shape that that is aero like the you know the aero optimized shape but inside it looks and feels like just about any other hyundai it's not like when you get into the prius where it's got all this white trim 
the it's trying very hard to be very distinctive. That's not quite so much what the the Ionic is. Yeah, I mean, Ionic is much more like you know driving an Elantra or Sonata. Yeah, um, and it the thing I think the the biggest thing I noticed about the hybrid system is that it's sluggish to respond to input. Like you've really, you've got to make big inputs to get what you want out of it, unless you put it in sport mode and then the the sport mode, it, it comes alive a little bit better, but there were, there were times where I felt like it's, it's just tuned to uh, just sort of damp out sudden driver inputs too much. It felt a little unresponsive in situations where I wanted it to, be a little bit more lively, you know, like, well, yeah, on. I mean, that, that's, that is absolutely the case. I mean, you know, for the, you know, for when you run it and drive, yeah. You know, and this, this applies to most hybrids too, you know, that they're, they tend to be tuned, as you say, you know, to damp out a lot of the, the inputs from the driver, uh, you know, and basically just smooth it out. So even if, even if you can't drive uh, efficiently, it'll do it for you. Yeah. Yeah. And it, you know, it's kind of hard to argue with a car that can run for, you know, 30 miles on the, the, the charge in, in electric mode. I, I was impressed with that kind of uh, capacity because it, it doesn't give up anything in terms of uh, cargo space either. Like I really like the packaging. I like the, it's roomy. It has good cargo space and it's a hatchback. So I, I like that. Like it's, it's, it's hard to really find fault with it other than like, yeah, it's, <laughs> It's trying to be as efficient as possible, which is this design mission. Yeah, like, you know, whole, that's the whole point of it. Yeah. Um, I un- unfortunately, because I didn't get to plug it in, um, I missed out. I think on some of the the efficiency uh, tests that I could could have gotten out of it, and it was you know it was cold here too, so that that always dings it. So I I doubt that I actually got up to the the fifty something. I think it's low fifties, like fifty two. Uh, yeah, it's, combined. It's, yeah, it's rated at fifty-two combined. Yeah, I don't think I got near that. Um, I, I mean, I didn't get bad fuel economy, but I, I don't think that I got into the fifties with it. Um, and and you know, you typically won't with with any. Ve- I mean, you know, any vehicle when the temp when the weather's cold, you're going to get worse fuel economy. Whether it's a conventional gas engine, a hybrid, a, or a battery electric, you know, they they always use more energy when it's cold. You know, I mean, you're you have more rolling resistance from your tires. Uh, you know, your tire pressures tend to drop a little bit. Uh, that adds adds to your rolling resistance. The you know the fluids are colder. You know, it, it every, everything just has you have more losses that are going to contribute to uh, to fuel economy. Plus, you know, the other thing too is they they reformulate the fuel for different times of the year. Yeah, oh, and yeah, we so. also have like E10 here or E15. So. Uh, maybe not even anyway we've we've got ethanol in our gas always yeah we do we do here in michigan too i mean most of the country does now it's it uh does not do wonders for your fuel economy <laughs> so that's the thing too like the epa ratings are done with with straight gas right the, uh yeah yeah so you're gonna get worse fuel economy with alcohol in there <laughs> it it doesn't do as good um maybe there's some scaling factor or something they apply to it i don't know but um, yeah, I think they, I think they do compensate for that. That is one of the factors, you know, if you, if you actually go to the, uh, the fuel economy.gov website, uh, where they post all the official ratings, 
Um, there's actually a link at the bottom of the page. If you scroll down to the bottom of fueleconomy.gov, you'll find a download link, and um, you can actually download the the data file. You know, it's got all the all the raw data Ooh. for every vehicle, and so you can see, you know, the 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 numbers that are on the window sticker, the official published numbers are adjusted, and that you know incorporates a, a bunch of factors, you know, but the the unadjusted numbers that you'll find in that spreadsheet are quite a bit higher, you know, and they, you know, they factor in things like, you know, using air conditioning. Um, you know, um, if you, you know, if the vehicle has uh, auto stop start, uh, that's, that's a fact, that's something that doesn't really show up in the, the test cycles that they do, but they, they apply a credit to the adjusted number. You know, so they'll give, you know, an extra couple of two or three percent to the adjusted to the final adjusted number. If you've got that, uh, if you've got, you know, certain types of more efficient air conditioning systems, they'll adjust for that. So there's all kinds of adjustment factors that get that get put in there. And part of that is adjusting for the, the fuels, huh. you know, so so, you know, for E10, you know, things like the, the mix of um ethanol-based fuels that are out there in the marketplace. It's like they're trying to be accurate or something. Gosh. Yeah, I know. Imagine that. You Crazy. Know, people always used to complain about how their numbers, you know, the label numbers are so much higher. And, you know, a lot of the time, you know, real-world numbers still come out lower than the, the label numbers. But if you think, you know, where it is today is a lot better than where it was 10 years ago and a lot better than where it was 20 years ago. Oh, yeah. I mean, looking back at some of the early early 80s early to mid 80s like a car ads where they've got the epa estimates in in little boxes in the ads some of the numbers is just absurd and you're like uh, yeah, what I is know. that like downhill idling <laughs> it's yeah. just crazy no way that thing gets 40 miles to the gallon um but this this definitely get, gets into the 40s pretty easily regardless of what you're you're doing um and the Ionic has, you know, typical Hyundai tech. It's got an eight inch screen in it. Or at least the one I did, it, it was the limited um, and it had all the, the techie stuff. Um, and, and Hyundai has been pretty aggressive about rolling out phone apps that link up with their cars. And I, I think that this particular segment of car is really ripe for that. You know, it's, it's almost uh, like a more connected buyer or, uh, a more savvy tech savvy buyer is going to be looking at this, this kind of car. You so. mean, you mean uh, apps for remotely managing the car? Um, yeah, it's got like, and I didn't play with it, but yeah, it's, like the, it's the blue link app. Yeah. The, the blue link remote and, and um, you know, the, just the different things you can do with it. Uh, I mean, you can, you got, I'm pretty sure it's like voice unlock and stuff like that too. Right. Like, isn't that, yeah, they, they've got support for Alexa skills and things like that. So if you have an Amazon echo, um, you can use that, you can, you can tie, you can download an Alexa skill for, uh, and it's not just for the, uh, for the Ionic, but it applies to, you know, pretty much all of, uh, Hyundai's current products. Um, you can use that to do things like remote start your car, check the fuel levels, check the battery charge levels. If you've got a plug in, um, you know, just by talking to your, your little cylinder in your kitchen. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm curious, you know, what, one of the, the, um, the plug-in is obviously a little bit heavier than the standard Ionic hybrid. You've driven the Ionic hybrid, the regular hybrid, right? Yes. Yep. Did did you notice any any significant difference in the the handling or ride quality with the the 
uh, plugin. You know, I think it's been it's been a while, so it's it's hard to sort of compare back to back. I I will say that it's felt it felt buttoned down, and and um, I didn't notice it like riding overly like a ponderous or anything like that. It it, it felt fine. What what in particular did you notice about the the two that that you're you're thinking of? Um. Uh- I haven't driven the Ionic, the plug-in hybrid yet. I've only driven the uh, the battery version and the uh, the regular hybrid. So I was just uh, curious, you know, if you if you had any thoughts on it, because um, I think it's about 150 pounds heavier uh, with the bigger battery. See, and I think that that probably helps it out because some some hybrids they're you know they've taken enough weight out of them that they it's not that they feel flimsy but i i'm, I'm remembering back to the last honda insight which was a very bad hybrid <laughs> yeah <laughs> um but that car just felt chintzy and you know they went a little too far but you know you don't want it to skitter in the middle of a corner and that kind of thing it's got low rolling resistance tires so it's got no no freaking traction um, it's it's got weird about, weight about 300 pounds difference in weight is it really uh, 300 that's uh yeah, it, it it felt good other than just being overly damped where, where I was like, come on, let's go. Um, and, you know, I'm an impatient New Englander, so <laughs> um, it, it gets a pass on that. Um, and and the uh, overall, like once you boot it, it it does does fine. You know, it's got a, an electric motor. It doesn't have a ton of like uh, combined power. So I was coming from I think I came out of the mini electric was oh yeah you had the the mini plug-in hybrid so that felt a lot more lively and that may color some of my impressions um you know because it's it's sort of two different ways of doing hybrids uh that where this is a lot more efficiency focused um and i i think the other thing i noticed was the the regen brakes there were a couple of times where i was like um we should stop now. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, some, some of that's just training, training your foot and, and getting used to it. Uh, I, you know, it, the fact that it just drove like a regular car for a week was, was great. And I think we have really flogged this to death. So yeah, we should, we should move on and talk about some things. All right. Um, yeah. It's, it's, so we, we have on the topic list, we're going to talk about another podcast. Yes. Um, uh, after uh, we recorded with Casey last week, uh, I listened to the the latest version of one of the other shows he does, the Accidental Tech Podcast. And Casey and uh, John Syracuse and um, Marco Armit were were talking about some some car stuff, which um, uh, you know inevitably gets them into uh, some problems. You know, since they're they're not as much as they they may be car enthusiasts, they're not necessarily as uh, well informed on those topics as they are on a lot of the other stuff that they talk about on that show. So I figured I'd, I would just address some of the stuff that they were discussing, um, specifically driver assist systems. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to rehash what, what John said. You know, I will, we'll put a link in the show notes, uh, to, uh, to that show and you can go and listen to it yourself. But basically I just want to give a little overview of, of what, what there is in driver assist systems today in terms of what the sensors are and what the systems are capable of. And, you know, so the, the, the main, uh, assist systems that are becoming pretty common on vehicles today, you've got adaptive cruise control, lane keeping systems, 
and blind spot monitoring systems. All of the stuff I shut off. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I'm, I'm sorry. Okay. Carry on. So <laughs> adaptive cruise control is actually the oldest of these. It's been around the longest. It, it came out in the late nineties. Um, and, uh, it, it's a radar based cruise control system, or in most cases it's radar based. There, there are a couple of exceptions, but generally, you know, for adaptive cruise control, you have a radar sensor in some cases, two radar sensors, a short range and a long range sensor that when you set your cruise control in your car, just like, you know, traditional cruise control systems, you set it at whatever speed you want to go. Um, but with older systems, you know, it would just, the, the system would hold your car at whatever speed you set. And, you know, somebody slows down in front of you, it, the system is going to keep going at that speed until you either uh, go, you know, steer around them, <clears throat> um, slow down yourself or crash into them. And <laughs> what, uh, what adaptive cruise control does is it uh, monitor, use the radar sensor to monitor the, the distance and the closing speed to the car in front of you. And if it's, if, if the gap gets too, gets too small, then the system will automatically slow your car down. It'll apply the brakes, reduce the engine power, and slow you down so you maintain that gap to the vehicle in front of you. Very handy when you're driving in traffic. Um, you know, makes it you know a lot, lot less, a lot easier. You know, a lot, uh, lot less workload on you. You know, to you know just basically follow along the person in front of you at a safe distance. Um, uh, you know. Over the years, they've added some other functionality to that. Things like uh, automatic emergency braking. So now, you know, if the if the person in front of you suddenly hits the brakes and slows down, or something comes out in front of you, it can you know the, it'll also use the same systems, the same sensors to you know hit the hit your brakes as hard as it can, you know, to slow you down to try and avoid a collision. Um, the the next one is lane keeping systems, which we've talked about before. Oh, before I before I leave that. It, uh, the other option for adaptive cruise control, which is currently in the U.S. market, is only used by Subaru. Um, Subaru has their eyesight system. And instead of a, a radar sensor, they actually use a stereo camera system, two, two cameras to give some depth perception. And they use that to manage the, the adaptive cruise control uh, using the, the the, the difference between what the cameras see to detect the distance and the closing speed to the car in front of you. And it actually works surprisingly well. Um, and, uh, you know, I've, I've tried it and, uh, it, it, I was quite impressed with the performance of the system. It's not quite as good as a radar system, but it's also less expensive. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that's the other alternative. Lane keeping systems also use cameras. And, you know, so these, these are, uh, you know, some of them are just lane departure warning and some of them are lane departure warning and, and prevention systems. And, you know, they use the camera, uh, to detect the lane markings, you know, as you're driving down the road and, and sometimes they even out, can manage to actually see the lanes. Uh, and, and what it does is it, it looks for where you are in the lane. And if you start drifting out of the lane, it'll give you an alert. Um, and sometimes even if you're not drifting out of the lane, it'll give you an alert. Um, which is one of the reasons why uh, a lot of people, you and myself included, more often than not end up turning the systems off because they they tend to have a lot of uh, false positives. But um, when they are working, uh, you know, they uh, the the lane departure prevention systems will also, if it sees you drifting out of the lane, it'll use your uh, electric power steering system to actually guide you, try to guide you back towards the middle of the lane. And the more advanced systems, more advanced versions of the systems, like what we see now in some of the um, level two automation systems, like 
Tesla Autopilot and uh, Cadillac Super Cruise and BMW's Intelligent Drive, you know, they actually try to do lane centering and keep you in the center, actively keep you in the center of the lane rather than just keep you from drifting out and, you know, ping-ponging back and forth between the lane markers. They'll actually try to keep you centered in the lane and, you know, in the case of the Cadillac, actually allow you to drive hands-free. So when you're in a car with those systems, do you ever feel like the damn thing's fighting you? until you figure out what's what's going on because i it always there's always this like notchiness as the car is trying to keep itself centered in the lane look what the hell (laughs) and i figure oh it's got Uh, that little steering system thing on and i shut it off yeah not 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 so much that maybe i just get distracted and i wander around too much i don't know that i think that that could be it you know you're just (laughs) you're just not paying attention yeah well Uh, there's a lot of texting to do on my commute i mean you know i've uh, you know i i have i have issues with a lot of the lane keeping systems i mean the the biggest issue is that the the lane detection just isn't very often is not very reliable yeah well but i also i i'll give them a pass to like a you can shut it off and b like what they're trying to do at a certain point, it's going to be invasive. So it's it's difficult to find that fine line about where, where it starts to make the correction and and where I'm not annoyed by it. And well, even for the systems that don't don't do the correction and try to keep you in the lane, even for the systems that are just warning systems, um, you know, all of these systems have some sort of indicator either in the instrument cluster or if they have a heads up display often in the in the HUD as well, um, you know, the when when you turn the systems on and typically they only work at speeds above about 35 to 40 miles an hour so they don't work at low speeds anyway um which i've never really gotten a good explanation on on why that is but but they typically don't work at low speeds i I think part of it is uh particularly for the prevention systems because it takes more you know lower speeds it takes more steering power to um to guide the vehicle and uh but at any rate, they, they typically don't don't work at low speeds. So, you know, as, when when it, when you hit the whatever the minimum speed threshold is, it's usually like I say somewhere around thirty five. Then you'll see the the indicator, the um, the lane marking. It'll show you lane marking indicators in the cluster or the HUD. You know that uh, they'll either be hollow when you're below the minimum speed threshold or grayed out. Um, and then they'll usually turn to a solid white um, or in some cases, a solid green when it's actively detecting the lane markings. And so often I find that these systems simply can't detect the lane markings and they never go green. They never go white. So they're just even when there's clear lane markings there, they they often don't work. Yeah. And most of the systems that are on the market today and in, in most vehicles, the, the biggest supplier of these systems today is a company called Mobileye, which was bought by Intel last year, and they were they were kind of the pioneer in this space. And you know, their systems work okay, but I've found them to be very inconsistent uh, in performance. And they they simply I would not I would not rely on them. Um, you know, the the Mobileye systems are all monovision, so they have that means they have one camera looking down the road. And, you know, they get they can easily get confused by lighting conditions, depending on where the sun is hitting it. If it if you're driving straight into the like, you know, especially in the evening or early morning, the sun is shining right into the camera. It can often blind it, um, you know, depending on where the sun is, you know, what, what angle it's hitting the lane markings at can have problems. If the lane markings are faded, it can have problems. Um, I found that the stereo vision systems like the 
like the uh, Hitachi system on Subarus or the auto leave system that's used by Mercedes Benz, um, uh, actually seem to be quite a bit more reliable at detecting the lane markings. Yeah, you know, and then you know, there's there's the actually detecting the lane markings, and then the sensitivity, you know, for when you know when it's going to alert you as you're starting to drift out of the lanes, and they, you know, again, you know, a lot of false positives, you know, and you know, some of these systems give you an audible alert, and they start beeping when you start to drift out of the lanes. <clears throat> Others will vibrate the steering wheel, and I definitely prefer that because it's less less intrusive. You know, the, 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 the beeping, you know, tends to be really annoying, especially if there's other people in the car. Um, and then, you know, GM has a system where they will vibrate the seat, you know, so they've got haptic feedback through the, the seat cushion. And so it'll, it'll actually vibrate on one side or the other, depending which way you're drifting out of the lane. So, you know, you, you have, you know, different kinds of feedback, different sensitivity and, you know, but basically just, I'm, I've never been particularly impressed with any of the lane keeping systems. Except for when you get into the the level two systems, like I said, like Super Cruise. Yeah, I, and I I think that that's that probably squares with my experience. They just, you know, if you're not if you're not paying enough attention to to, to keeping your lane, you probably should not be there. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I I don't know. I, I guess in that sort of like one one or two cases, like where you, where you drift a little bit and it, it does the beep, and usually I find that with the steering assist, like when you go to correct, it gives you too much you know, because it's already kicking in its own little bit. Yeah. And that, that's one of the problems, you know, with, with the, the assist, you know, is a lot of times, you know, you, it, it does overcorrect and you end up about what, you know, ping ponging right. you know, off back and forth up from one side of the lane to the other. You know, if you're, if you just kind of let it do its thing instead of, you know, taking control again. And, you know, I found, you know, there's some systems that work better than others that do a better job, even if they're not officially lane centering, they actually do a better job of something close to lane centering. And I found Hyundais are actually among the best I've tried for that. They actually do a a really good job of, you know, tracking the lane, you know, and not bouncing back and forth across the lane. And uh, Hondas, uh, recent Hondas are also pretty good at that. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I actually, I think I was impressed with the Subaru system too. And just how it, maybe I'm confused too, because it's been a while again and I shut this stuff off. Um, so uh, it's you, like you say, some of it's actually a lot more gentle and, and just, I was, because when we get these cars, like that's one of the first things I do is play with that stuff and just see, see how it works. And I usually shut it off because it's unsatisfying and, un, you know, it, it's, it's just, it, it, it gets in the way of just driving. Um, yeah. and, and uh, yeah, anyway, I don't want to complain, so we'll keep and moving. Then, and then the last <laughs> and, and my favorite of these systems is, uh, the blind spot monitors, you know, which uses uh, a pair of, uh, short range radar mm-hmm. sensors that are mounted somewhere in the rear corners of the vehicle that look for vehicles in the, in the blind spot. And, you know, typically, you know, if you actually have your mirrors, your side mirrors set up properly, um, they're, you know, they don't actually give you a whole lot more information. Uh, you know, I mean, you should be able to see what's in the blind spot anyway, but you know, any extra little bit of information can help. Uh, but what they're actually, what I find them to actually be the most useful for is not so much the blind spot monitoring, but one of, you know, af- after the systems first started coming out, they started adding a new function, a second function to them, which is cross traffic alert. 
which um, when you're backing when you're backing up out of a parking space in a parking lot, uh, it you know uses those sensors to look down the aisle in either direction. And you know these days, you know because everybody wants to drive SUVs, you know it's a lot harder to see over the cars on either side of you when you're trying to back out to see if there's somebody coming down the lane or down the aisle. And um, so having that cross traffic alert, I find to be extremely helpful, you know, just in case somebody's, you know, coming, coming along and, you know, it gives me an alert, you know, to stop before I back out, you know, even before I can see that person coming. And so that's actually a really useful feature. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, anything where it's sort of like low speed maneuvering where there's obstacles, because you have a, a lot of things you're processing when you're, you know, backing out of a driveway, even where I, I've almost flattened people walking down the sidewalk just because you look and then you move and then you look again. And holy crap, there's a person there. They popped up from behind where, a you know, shrubbery. Yeah, where did they come from? Yeah. Uh, where, and, and then you feel like a on jerk. The tricycle come from? Yeah. And, and uh, I mean, I'm not. Some of the systems, and they're not really ADAS, that you know, like the the rear view cameras. I don't have a problem with the rear view camera. What I don't want us to do is get lazy about learning how to use mirrors. Um, but also the, the rear view cameras that put the display in the rear view mirror, the central mirror. I wish there was a way to move that around. Uh, I forget which car it was that had it. Um, when I drove it, it put it right exactly like the LCD image from the rear view camera was exactly where I wanted to look in the rear view mirror. I was like, if I could just put it over on the right instead of the left, it'd be great. Um, yeah, there's, there's a few different brands of vehicles that have done that. They're, they're getting, they, they mostly did that, you know, before we started getting the, the big, uh, central displays and the touchscreens in almost everything. Um, you know, so on, on cars that didn't have big center, dis, you know, uh, high resolution displays in the, in the center stack, they would use them, you know, put the display in the mirror. Uh, but now that almost everything's got a touchscreen in it, um, they're they're not doing that as much anymore. Yeah, I mean, it's nice because it it puts it right there. It's, it's I'm not opposed to it. It's just I I feel like some of this stuff needs to be personalizable. That's a crappy word. Um, yeah. <laughs> customizable to your your particular. Well, yeah, ways. well yeah. I mean, you know, to to your argument about you know when when it is in the mirror. You know, it's not like in most cases, you know, the, the whole mirror is not an LCD display. So, yeah, you know, the, it's the, the the LCD is hidden behind the mirror surface and only when it comes on can you see it. So it's not like you can move it around. If it if it was if the entire mirror was also uh, a display, you know, then you could position it wherever you want. Well, listen, it's friggin 2018. We were supposed to have jetpacks and flying cars by now. I feel <laughs> like they can give me a mirror where I can move the display around the display that I don't even it, really it, want, but whatever the flying, the flying cars are coming any minute now. I, that's what I hear. And I think it's nonsense. Um, yeah, well, you know, I, 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 for one do not want, uh, you know, flying, uh, flying human carrying drones, you know, as, as air taxis in cities, because, those things are just going to be way too damn loud. <laughs> uh, you I mean, know, you know, you've, you've heard you've heard drones, haven't you? Yeah, they just, they just I mean, yes. Rotorcraft are not quiet. They make noise. Unless it's like noise. the CIA black helicopters with the cloaking technology. Yeah, but and then we're, we're not going to have that. Yeah. Um, and, and, and even those make some noise. Yeah. I, I, I don't want to get into tinfoil hat stuff anyway. It's just it's <laughs> just um, 
yeah i mean the, the flying car like ever since i started writing about cars that terra future thing that's that's uh you know just always been like right on the cusp and then they just got another investment i was like uh didn't they get bought by a chinese company yeah it's like a chinese company must need to launder money or something i don't this <laughs> never gonna happen flying cars are not going to happen and and if they do uh ye of little faith i i just i don't know I, I, I agree. I don't, I don't I don't think they will happen. And, and, you know, even if the technology becomes reasonably practical, I don't really want it to happen. Yeah, I don't I, I, I don't like flying you know, that let, much. Let cars be cars and aircraft be aircraft. You know, we don't need yeah. to have aircraft that drive or cars that fly. I mean, but maybe it'd be easier if we had flying cars, you wouldn't have to take off like your belt and suspenders and shoes and whatever to go through the stupid security theater. You just like, I'm going to get in the flying car and I'm going to go to Omaha today. Like, All right. Yeah. I, whatever. It's, it's hard. It's hard enough to teach people how to drive. Can you imagine what it's going to be like when it rains or like when it's in that transitional period between rain and ice, when it starts to build up on the, the wingtips and the control surfaces? Like, yeah, and then, then you're in Chicago and you run out of the icing fluid. Yeah. It's, there's made for TV movies about this stuff. It's yeah. Even real life. I mean, yeah. it happened a couple of weeks ago, you know, during the, the big snowstorm in Chicago, they, at Midway Airport, uh, Southwest Airlines ran out of de icing fluid and had to cancel yeah. our hard flights. I mean, it's just like we're going to have a whole new new compendium of of like phrases like, oh, he went down harder than an L-1011 in 1985. Like just stuff like that. It's going to anyway, <laughs> moving on. I'm being too dark. All right. Uh, so uh, we get the, the eight ass sort of uh, lowdown. OK. Um, and then uh, Volvo. Yeah. Volvo's got a new engine. Volvo engines are amazing. Right now, they are. Their their current generation of engines are awesome. Yeah, I'm really really impressed by them. Uh, and I love triples, which is surprising because it just it, it's not a thing that should be a thing. But three cylinder engines are really good, and they have a lot of modern, personality. Mod, modern three cylinders are great. Yeah, I, I I remember the first three cylinder car I ever drove. I know what it was. Not great. It was was it a, was the Geo Metro? It was in fact a Geo Metro because you were a GM. And, and, and better yet, it was a Geo Metro with a three-speed automatic. Oh, Christ. <laughs> that was like, what, did it shift with a bang? Like every, every shift was like a thump that made the, like the dashboard shake? Because that's... I mean, it, so the, whole, the whole thing was just a, a little buzz bomb. That's true. You know, the, at, at 60 miles an hour, 65 miles an hour, you know, it was revving, I think, about 4,500 RPM. Yeah, and the, you had your foot to the floor, so there were no pumping losses. It was very efficient. <laughs> <That's>, yeah, <it's laughs> uh, yeah, they've come a real long way. Um, that, and that was like the Mini Electric had that, their three-cylinder, their, their big... I think their three cylinder is big at, at 1.5 liters. What's yeah, I mean that's a, that's about the upper limit of and and really I mean that's that's what most of the new three cylinders that are coming to market are at 1.5. Yeah, liters. Volvo's is going to be 1.5 too, and so yeah, yeah I, we should back up right. The story is the, the new XC40 is they've just announced a, a three cylinder drive e engine, so it's just basically a three cylinder version of the the um the two liter four right yeah it's 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 the four cylinder minus one cylinder and and a reconfigured crankshaft 
and it is so it's still turbocharged or turbo and supercharged or is it just turbocharged? I believe it's just turbocharged. I don't think that there's a, a, a twin charge version of it, but um, it, it has been designed uh, to fit in with their twin engine uh, plug in hybrid architecture. So uh, we will see we'll see both uh, 48 volt mild hybrid versions of this thing in the next couple of years and also a full plug in hybrid uh, variant of it as well. So you'll have the uh, the engine, the three cylinder driving the front wheels and an electric motor driving the rears. They, basically, they just and I, I'm just finishing up my review of the Countryman E for Forbes. They Volvo just made a Countryman E. That's exactly what it is. Pretty much, yeah. You know, the the XC40, um, you know, is, uh, I think it's a little bit bigger than a Countryman. Not not too much. It's but. the same. It's the same kind of through the road hybrid configuration. Mm-hmm. And yeah. th- actually, that's really good though because uh, it, that can be. It seems like simple, like a parlor trick. Like, oh yeah, all you did was put an electric motor in the rear axle. It works really well. It's great. <laughs> it's 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 well good to drive mechanically it's a lot simpler than trying to do a power split hybrid like the the toyota system or the the ford system you know so the the transmission you know it's just a conventional automatic transmission um and you know then you just you put that motor on the back the the one downside uh to these through the road hybrids is because the electric motor is on the rear axle you don't get as much uh regen capability because you know when you when you when you're decelerating, you're getting weight transfer from the rear axle onto the fronts, mm. and so there, there's less load on the rear wheels under braking, which means that you can't brake as hard. That's I mean that's why all vehicles have smaller brakes on the rear axle, and so you're you're not going to be able to recapture as much energy from regen with this type of uh, configuration as you would if the electric motor was on the front axle. Yeah, but with regen, you're still you, there's still energy you have to throw away right that you just can't put back into the battery that quickly anyway so um it, it depends on the kind of battery that you have oh, okay um you know so you know if the if the bat if you if you've got uh certainly you know, it depends on the, the battery chemistry and how fast it can absorb or release uh power and um you know for example you know when i had the chevy bolt last year you know, the, the bolt, when you put it in low mode, when it's got max regen, I yeah. mean, you know, it, it does a lot of regen and it's not throwing that energy away. It's pumping it all back huh. into the battery. And it, you know, it has a pretty significant impact on the overall range of the car when you drive it in the max regen mode versus the normal mode. I mean, it's, it's like 20, 22, 23% extra range. That's a lot. That. Wow. And, and, that, and that's because you've got the motor on the front wheels. And it, you know, that's, this is one of the things, you know, went a few years back when Tesla first started doing their dual motor, all wheel drive system. Um, you know, even though those cars got heavier, they actually were able to improve the range of the car for that very reason, because, you know, the, the regular Teslas are all rear wheel drive. And when they, when they added the front motor, they were able to do a lot more regenerative braking um, at, at the front axle than they could do at the rears. And, you know, they fed that, that energy back into the battery. And so that helped the range, you know, gave them, I think it boosted their range by about 10 or 15%. Well, that and the magic, you know, Elon Musk fairy dust (laughs) makes, makes Tesla's like, those are perpetual motion machines after all. Uh, the perpetual something. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the most impressive thing about the new XC40 with the, the the triple is that it's going to come standard 
with a six-speed manual. I I don't know if that's true for the U.S. market, but on the uh, global, almost newsroom, certainly not. I'm, um, I'm guessing the chances of getting any XC40 with a manual transmission, regardless of engine, in the U.S. market will be very slow. Oh, but that would be so awesome! Like uh, the hybrid with the manual, uh, and at least if the, they're going to put an automatic in it, just this is one of the problems with hybrids. Typically, is from a driving perspective, they're not pleasant because they have a CVT. That's, you know, the CVT is designed well to, to work as that torque split device. Um, they're going to put an eight speed automatic, like a conventional automatic in the XC40 as well. So, so it'll be pleasant to drive and that's, well, that's and, good. And that's, you know, again, that's one of the things that's made easier by doing that through the road hybrid configuration. Yeah. But you know, it's funny you mentioned that, you know, not, not all hybrids, you know, even uh, even if they're not through the road, even if they're parallel hybrids, um, uh, some of them, a lot of them now have conventional automatic transmissions like the Hyundai. Right. The Hun- that's one of the reasons I like the Hyundai system better than, say, the Toyota system is that it it just it has a more positive feel. Uh, it's not as like loosey goosey with with the, the gearing, you know, and, and that's probably just preference because they both obviously work, but. Um, yeah, I, so who else has a conventional transmission though? There's, there's Hyundai Um, and then, well, uh, Hyundai, um, all, most of the Germans, you know, all the BMW and Mercedes Benz hybrids and plug-in hybrids all have conventional transmissions. Um, a lot of the, uh, the, in fact, I think all of the, the Volkswagen and Audi, uh, hybrid vehicles are that way. Um, so actually there's actually more of them that are configured that way than with a power split. Part of that is because they, you know, people tend to prefer the, the driving experience with those configurations. Yeah. But you know, there's also the fact that, you know, Toyota has got a whole bunch of patents on the, the power split hybrid setup. Yeah. Which I think started off as, wasn't that a, a TRW? Uh, yeah, it was that. originally invented by TRW. The first patents on that configuration were from like 1969 and 70 and engineers at TRW created the, created it, but they couldn't really implement it because the technology at the time, you know, the you know, you didn't have the electronic control systems, and so you couldn't really make it work very well. And so, you know, nobody adopted it. It wasn't really until the the mid to late '90s when you started getting the electronic control systems and and a lot of the other pieces to actually make it work uh, reasonably well. But that first Corvan was pretty interesting. And it had a lot of lot of features on it that, because uh, I think it was a Corvan that had the TRW system in it, or I don't know. Uh, I don't know if they ever actually put it in a vehicle or if they only bench tested it. GM did some sort of it was I think it was well, an GM, a, a GM hybrid had Corvan. a Corvair van. It was it was an, they had an electric one. Maybe that's what and, I'm thinking of. And actually, the the first the first ever fuel cell vehicle was a Corvair van. Oh, maybe that's what I'm thinking of. E- either yeah, way, the, like the electro van, it was very forward looking. And, and yeah. just, to, just to look back at that and be like, Oh, these are ideas that are not new. They're just no. like, we've, we've got the technology now to actually pull it off. It's, it's just, it's cool. Um, so <laughs> getting back to Volvo, <laughs> um, the last three cylinder Volvo I experienced PR had a bad PRV. Probably. Uh, yeah. What was that? I said, we are good at tangents. We are. Well, I mean, it's a Friday. I mean, it's, it's fine. Um, it makes an entertaining show. I think, <laughs> uh, is this going to be like a less expensive XC40 or they are like, 
where does I would, it, I would assume so. Yeah. I mean, I, I would assume this is, you know, this is going to be, well, it with just the three cylinder and no hybrid, you know, this will be the base configuration. And actually, you know, when they announced last summer that they're going to electrify all their, their vehicles from 2020, uh, or 20, starting from 2019. So, um, you know, uh, the, the base, the base XC40, uh, at some point in the next year and a half or so is going to be a three cylinder with a 48 volt mild hybrid system. And, um, you know, that, that'll, you know, let's see the, the gas three cylinder is rated 190 horsepower. Um, and that's a, that's, they're calling the T4. So that's, that's turbocharged. Um, so that'll, that'll probably be the base setup in this vehicle. And then, um, the, the plug-in hybrid and then the, full battery electric versions will be optional. Yeah, I I have no doubt that it's it's going to look great because uh, Volvo's new styling, I mean, we've, we've already seen it, but uh, it's going to look good, it's going to drive great, and it's going to be pretty efficient. So uh, the, the one I'm looking forward to driving is the the new V60. Yeah. The pictures of that, of that that came out this week. Oh, that looks so good. Yeah, Volvo is, uh, they're, they're, they're doing all right. Do not, yeah. Although I I kind of threw a nutty on Twitter <laughs> earlier this week about census. Um, yeah. Okay. I, I, we're, we're getting along now more, <laughs> more than we were. Uh, all right. Let's see. Um, that's just about everything on the list, except for the goings on at Ford, which we can touch on just very briefly. Cause that's still sort of unfolding. Yeah, so so late Wednesday, uh, this is, we're recording this on Friday night. Uh, so two days ago, uh, right at the end of the day, uh, Ford sent out a press release uh, announcing that Raj Nair, their uh, current who became uh, president of uh, North America, Ford North America, uh, last June after Jim Hackett took over, uh, and uh, he uh, left the company uh, with immediate effect. Um, apparently, uh, they had been, he had been under investigation, under investigation internally at Ford for several weeks, uh, and was, uh, found to be in violation of the company's code of conduct, uh, for inappropriate behavior. And, uh, he's now gone. And he, uh, the following day, they announced that, uh, uh, Kumar Golhatra will be taking over, uh, that position as, as, uh, president of the Americas for Ford. And, um, moving over from from running Lincoln and being uh, chief marketing officer and I think I think Kumar will do a good job he's, he's I think he's done a really good job over the last several years uh, as a steward for for the Lincoln brand and and really helping to revive that brand and kind of getting them back on track um, and you know kind of you know getting getting uh, a good um, a good strategy together for Lincoln you know to be reasonably successful and uh, so I, th- I think he'll I think he'll be good for the Ford brand as well going forward. But, um, you know, it, you know, it's it. I think it um, I don't think that uh, Raj Nair will be the last person from uh, an automaker to be leaving for this reason. You know, it basically what it comes down to is, you know, there have been a lot of rumblings uh, for some time about his um his behavior towards uh, other employees um, who are not men and um, <laughs> being very delicate. Yeah. Well, you know, I, 
I, you know, none of this, you know, has been officially announced by Ford. You know, I've not personally witnessed any of this stuff. Um, you know, so uh, I'm, I'm just saying, you know, what has been said. Um, you know, I, I don't want to accuse anybody, but you know, the fact is he is no longer with Ford after, uh, almost 30 years there. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and I think he won't be the last person maybe, you know, maybe, maybe not from, you know, maybe from Ford. Um, certainly, uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see some other people departing, you know, given the, given all the other stuff that's been going on in other business areas, um, over the last year or so, you know, in the entertainment industry and media, um, and, you know, from other companies, um, I, you know, there's, there's a lot more focus on, um, bad behavior by men towards women in business. And, you know, I, I'm I'm glad to see that you know this kind of stuff is fine. That the attitudes towards that kind of behavior are finally changing, you know, and that people are being held to account for for a lot of really bad behavior. And you know, certainly the auto industry, you know, like like many industries, you know, has been very male dominated for a very long time. Uh, and so you know, there's there have always been. Uh, you know, instances of, of bad behavior. And, and now, you know, that's fortunately, you know, I think that's no longer, it's being toler It's being, being tolerated a lot less than it used to be. Yeah. Let's put it that way. I mean, and it, it is like, you've got to, especially like the automotive journalism industry. Yes. There's a lot of lechery that goes on and it's, it's one of the, the, the biggest um, turnoffs and, and then just the whole idea of of treating people that way like any people that because it's not hard like just, just keep your hands off people <laughs> like, yeah and and you know it's it's actually it's it's not just you know behavior of men towards women it's also you know towards other men i mean you know there as we've seen you know cases like uh kevin spacey um yeah. you know um with his behavior towards other men you know um and there's there's been i just saw today you know um reports you know brendan fraser uh, you know, who oh, had yeah, I read quite, that GQ article. career going on in the, in the 1990s. And, yeah. you know, all of a sudden, you know, about 10 years ago, he kind of disappeared for, for a long time. And, and, you know, now it's come out, you know, it's because he was, he had been, um, assaulted by somebody. And, yeah. uh, so, you know, it's, you know, it, it goes, it, it's, you know, it's just bad behavior in general, you know? So basically, you know, the, 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 don't be an asshole. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. I mean, the Keep your hands to yourself. Yeah. It, again, it's, it's not hard. Um, it, yeah. it, it, uh, it just makes you, you kind of like, it, it's one of those things that I actually felt like I was limiting myself because I was so turned off by a lot of that behavior and a lot of different industries. Like it's, it's part of the reason why I never went into to music as a, a recording engineer. Um, uh, because I just don't, I, I can't square, like that kind of lifestyle and, and just, just tr treating other people poorly. It, and, you know, just also, you know, around the edges of, of the, the film and TV industry and, and not even around the edges, it's, it's, is there. Uh, and, and I mean, advertising, it's like all of these things like that, just that dynamic is, is like ever present and it's always gross. And so just please don't, don't do that. <laughs> stop it i'm glad that it's all coming out and i'm glad that there's there's uh you know in, increased scrutiny on it and i i uh am curious to see what 
goes on at Ford now with the the shift because I just like what has been the plan for Lincoln that was executed because I still feel like from the outside looking in I, I'm not sure that it fully makes sense to me or that I'm I'm seeing it maybe it's been you know, sort of quietly well, rebuilding yeah, the so, brand yeah so what I mean really what it's been about is really focusing um, as much as anything on the customer experience you know, so, you know, what they've done is, you know, they've tried to, they've tried to, you know, to differentiate their vehicles, you know, a little more from, from Ford vehicles than they have been in the past. Um, you know, and clearly, you know, Lincoln is not going to get any dedicated platforms, you know, the way, for example, um, Cadillac has, or, or Lexus has, um, you know, so they're, they're not going to get unique platforms. I mean, there's just, there's not enough volume there to, to justify that kind of investment, um, especially on the car side, uh, these days. So, you know, what they have done is they've taken the, the, the platforms that they have, you know, uh, you know, which are, you know, obviously shared with Ford. Um, but they've, they've actually done a really good do- job of setting them apart from their Ford siblings. You know, so they, I mean, starting from the, when they launched the current generation MKZ, you know, back in 2012, um, you know, they, you know, they gave, they gave it a really distinct look from the fusion. You know, it doesn't look like a fusion anymore. Um, and you know, with, you know, over the last couple of years, you know, with the continental and now the navigator, especially they've really, um, done a great job on the interiors to really make the interiors of these vehicles distinguished from Ford, you know, I'm, I'm driving, actually driving a navigator right now this week and, you know, looking around in this thing, you know, comparing it to the expedition, you know, there, there doesn't appear, there's not a single part that I can see or touch that is shared with Ford. You know, it doesn't, it does not look like just a gussied up expedition. I mean, every piece is unique, you know, even down to like the turn signal stocks and the switch gear, you know, it has been specifically designed and engineered for this vehicle and, you know, would not go into uh, into an expedition. So, you know, the the experience of driving this thing is, you know, distinctly different from driving a Ford. And I think that's a that's a good thing, you know, and then they've done, you know, stuff, you know, with their the customer experience, you know, the dealerships, the black label program, the, the concierge stuff they're doing to really make it a, a better experience. You know, so you're spending more money for this vehicle and you're, you're getting a nicer experience when you're driving and you're getting a nicer ownership experience and buying experience. Um, so, uh, you know, I think, you know, and it seems to be working, you know, their, their, their sales have been growing steadily for the last couple of years um, and they're, they're making good progress. So it it really is basically, hey, let's pay attention to what Lexus is doing in this space and do more of of that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, to to a degree, yeah, that's that's absolutely true. Uh, good. Well, I mean, maybe all Fords can be that nice to own someday. <laughs> hey, uh, I oh, go ahead. Oh, the, we did have uh, a question on Twitter. I, I was going to uh, say I forgot a topic. Um, the the uh, Waymo driverless ride sharing. Uh, yeah, Arizona. so so Waymo got a license from the state of Arizona to run their autonomous uh, ride hailing platform there. And so. there's there's nothing in Arizona, so like they there's not really much <laughs> well, to there's, there's Phoenix. That's I mean, not they're, true. They're doing it in Phoenix. I'm being a smartass and yeah. throwing shade on the place. Yeah, 
Um, but but you're right. It is, it is a less challenging environment than San Francisco or Manhattan or or Chicago. So what are they hoping? To, I mean, obviously they're they're hoping to refine their their tech, but um, are they they hoping to to get the benefits of being in some place that's not such a difficult environment so, so that they, they can incrementally get better at it before they, they deploy yeah, in those places. That's, that's certainly part of it, you know? Um, and you know, they, they want to, you know, figure out the, the ride hailing platform and, you know, figure out the, you know, the customer experience, the user experience in these vehicles, you know, figure out what, what people are going to accept, you know, what, what it's going to take to get people into these vehicles uh, as opposed to driving their own vehicles. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot to be learned. Yeah. Well, and you actually just rode in one of these. So, um, yeah, it was back in uh, October, the end of October and, you know, it worked really well. Yeah. I mean, that was on their test track. It wasn't, it wasn't in a city environment. Um, so, you know, it, it was, you know, compared to, you know, where I rode in the, uh, in the Chevy bolt, uh, that's being developed by Cruise, you know, with GM, um, uh, you know, that was right in the heart of San Francisco. And, you know, that was definitely, you know, a, a much tougher environment or even, you know, the, the BMWs, uh, that Aptiv was running in Las Vegas during CES, you know, that was a much more challenging environment than what I experienced with the, uh, with the Waymo van. But, um, I'm, I'm heading back out to Silicon Valley next month. Um, and, uh, I'm hoping to uh, get a ride, um, in, uh, in Silicon Valley, you know, on the streets there with this vehicle to see what it's, uh, what it's like in, in a more real world environment. Well, good report back. And in the meantime, maybe we can figure out some, some regulation and legislation that keeps up with the technology. Cause that's really the next step. Regulation. Yeah. In this, in this day and age. No, uh, we don't, we don't need any regulations. <laughs> Clearly regulations are bad for business. You know what? Let's let the market decide. Yeah, sure. What could possibly go wrong? Right. All right. Speaking, speaking of which, <laughs> um, Ben Miller uh, sent us a question on uh, on Twitter uh, earlier earlier this afternoon. Uh, he said he'd love to hear a discussion on the data that automakers are collecting from our vehicles and how they are using connected cars to do it. Are they selling this data? Is this a new revenue stream? Does this impact the consumer? And will the savings be passed on? Um, so first of all, uh, you know all the you know more and more cars now have you know built in cellular data modems and, you know, telematic systems. I mean, it's now been a little over 20 years since GM launched OnStar. Um, and within the next two to three years, you know, this technology, you know, connected, con this connected technology in cars is going to be pretty much universal in all new cars. You know, virtually 100% of new cars are going to have it within the next few years. I think, uh, is this the end of the innocence though? Because they're not really collecting data right now right or like sell uh, well, they, actually no they are they're collecting some but they're not they're not selling it right like maybe they are too i don't know yeah i mean it, it's it's starting to happen so um you know first of all you know you know the, these are you know systems like onstar and hyundai's blue link and and you know ford sync connect or now they're they're rebranding it as uh, ford pass connect um, you know, all these systems, you know, have the ability to, you know, provide all kinds of services to customers, you know, like, you know, being, you know, all the, you know, you, you mentioned the, um, you know, the remote app, uh, for the, uh, Ionic earlier, yep. you know, to be, to be able to do things like manage your, your battery charging, you know, determine, you know, check the state of charge, your battery or find charging stations and things like that, or precondition the car, you know, like you know, warm it up while the, um, you know, while it's still plugged in. 
um, you know, all those things require connectivity. And so that's one of the reasons that's driving this. Um, but, you know, for some time now, you know, manufacturers have also been collecting uh, telemetry data uh, from vehicles. And, you know, certainly, you know, the best known of this is Tesla. You know, they collect all kinds of data from the vehicles that their customers drive, um, including, you know, when a crash happens, you know, and they'll tell you that, no, your autopilot was not engaged at, at the, you know, during that last 10 seconds before you hit the uh, that barrier. Um, and so, you know, they um, they are they are collecting a lot of telemetry data. Um, but, you know, most automakers that have these systems in vehicles are collecting some degree of data. And I, I actually did a, a research report on this uh, back in 2016, and I'll be updating it later this year um, on, you know, data services for, for cars. Um, and I talked to a, a bunch of automakers. And the, the thing that I heard from pretty much everybody, uh, except for Tesla, who refused to answer the question, was... <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, I, I asked the question, you know, who owns the data that comes off your car? Yeah. And, uh, and most of them say you do, right? Yeah. They, they all said, you know, the customer owns the data and, you know, the, the, the automaker is just a steward of that data, you know? Um, so, but you know, what, what happens is when you buy the car and you, uh, activate the service and you, you agree to, to use this service, Part of that big long EULA that you didn't read, the end user license agreement that you didn't read, is that you're giving the, that automaker permission to use that data. And for the most part, it's it's pretty innocuous. You know, I mean, they're they're doing things. You know, like in order to provide you with vehicle health reports. You know, I mean, most of these systems, you know, will will send you a, a monthly email saying, hey, you know, here's current status of you know systems in your car. You know, your your oil, you know, oil change interval, you're about 80% through your oil life. And, you know, you're going to need an oil change in about, you know, three or four weeks, things like that. Um, you know, so they're collecting a variety of data about what's going on inside your car. Um, and part of that is, you know, to provide these conveniences for you. Um, but part of it is they're, they're also using it to look at how customers are using the cars and they, they feed that into their product development process. You know, so they've, they look at, especially for electrified vehicles, you know, this, you know, this is particularly important, you know, to understand how customers are using their, their plug-in hybrid cars. And then it impacts some of the decisions they make going forward. It's like, okay, how big a, you know, based on the way our customers are actually using the Chevy Volt, the first generation Chevy Volt, how big a battery should we put into the second generation Volt? You know, are they using, um, you know, 240 volt charging or 110 volt charging? You know, um, Oh, 90% of them are only because they, you know, because it's, you know, it's a plug-in hybrid and it can keep running even without a charge. Um, 90% of our customers are never using 240 volt charging. They're just using 110. So given that, there's no reason to add DC fast charging to this car. Uh, so think, you know, things like that. So it helps them, you know, in their product planning for their next generation of vehicles. Um, but going forward, you know, and I think, you know, what, what prompted this question from Ben was it, was it was an article from Ars Technica um, that you know was about uh, some of the um, some of the ways that companies you know are hoping to sell some of this data, and you know going back to that question I asked you know all these different automakers you know about who owns the data they said well customer owns the data we're stewards of that data so well what about you know sharing the data with third parties, and you know what they all said 
was that you know before we before we'll share data with uh, with third party providers, you know we get the customer to opt in. You know, so we we won't share the data unless the customer has specifically opted into that. Uh, so you have to give permission before they will do that. So how does that work in the case of of the uh, coming police state? <laughs> no, like, um, well, I'll, I'll get to that in a second. Yeah, um, but. First of all, uh, you know, so one of the first ways that this is happening is um, with insurance companies. You know, a lot of insurance companies today, you know, will give you a discount if you agree to share information with them. And, you know, typically you know, what they've been doing for the last several years is they'll give you this free little OBD, this little dongle that you plug into your OBD2 connector that collects data about the way you drive. And, you know, then they'll give you a discount on your insurance for being a, a good driver because they know more about your specific driving behavior and and your style and you know so it can help them with their risk modeling and so they'll give you a discount on your premiums well now what they can do because the cars have access to even more data than than that little adapter you plug in if they can get the data directly from the manufacturer they can have an even better model a better risk model and so that's starting to happen as car makers are starting to um, share data with insurance companies. Again, you know, the driver has to, opt, the owner has to opt into that, to that sharing of data. And if they, you know, if they agree to that, then they can get discounts on their insurance premiums. Yeah, so they, the companies can charge more and pay out less. Awesome. Uh, well, yeah, <laughs> I mean, the, well, the, the thing is, you know, if, if, you, if you really are a lower risk driver, then now, you know, the insurance companies can give you a discount. But what happens is whether or not, regardless of whether you're a lower risk driver, if you decide that you don't want to share your uh, information, now you're probably going to end up paying more. So you're being incentivized to share that information. And so you're going to get a bigger, a bigger bifurcation between low risk drivers and high risk drivers. And so if you do tend to drive faster, drive more aggressively uh, in the next few years, you're probably going to end up paying a lot more for your car insurance. See, I feel like regardless of my driving style, that's just like an inherently discriminatory practice. I, I'm more concerned about uh, privacy and security. And I'm not paranoid, but it's just I don't feel like. Oh, and that's, that's, feel that's, like, a, yeah. that's a very legitimate concern, um, you know, you know what you know what happens to this data you know are the the car makers protecting it well enough um you know and and what's hap what's starting to happen now is we've got there are several companies you know cuz there's all kinds of ideas you know that com people are coming up with for different services that you could create based on the data that's generated by the cars you know whether it's um you know providing uh, discounts on various things based on your location, you know, um, or your, you know, your various other preferences that it might be able to gather about you. Um, but you know, so what we're, what we're starting to see is there's a few companies, there's companies like a, a company called Autonomo. Um, Ericsson has a, a connected vehicles platform. IBM's Watson division has their own connected car platform. And all of these are, data brokerage platforms. And so what they're doing is they're working with multiple car makers to aggregate the data from, from the vehicles that they, that they build and then, uh, making, you know, doing a lot of, uh, analysis, you know, big data analysis on that and some machine learning stuff and providing APIs to service providers that they can tap into to provide services to drivers 
and you know, hopefully there should be some benefit to you know that the drivers can, car owners can glean from that uh, in exchange for sharing their data. Um, so now you've got a, a you know more players in this spectrum in this scene besides just you and your the manufacturer of your car. You've got the data brokerage platform. You've got these other providers. And um, so now there's more places for your data to potentially leak. There's more attack surfaces for hackers, you know, to get your data. Um, and then going further out, you know, to autonomous vehicles, if we stop owning our own cars and we are driving around or riding around in autonomous mobility services, now you don't own that vehicle. The fleet owns that vehicle. Right. And so the fleet owns the data. That's that is the presumption. And this this is something that, you know, has these are questions that have yet to be answered. Um, and this is one of the things that I'm going to be looking at in the, in the coming months is, you know, and I've, I've had these conversations with a number of different companies. And so far, there's no real consensus yet on who owns that data. But, the you know, to to the question of you know, to Ben's question of will the savings be passed on? Probably not. For, well, initially, you'll be incentivized with the savings. But at a certain point, I feel like you're going to have to pay more to be left the hell alone. <laughs> and it's again, it's not that I'm paranoid. I just like I shut well, location no, I mean, and that, stuff off actually, on my that, phone. I don't want to be bothered. That, that's totally not a not a paranoid thing. I mean, you know, AT&T, for example, does this, um, I think, in, in with their Internet service. Uh, with their Uverse, or rather, I think their fiber internet service uh, that they offer in some locations, um, you can uh, you can get uh, high, uh, you know, you can get their their max, you know, their gigabit fiber service, and if you uh, agree to get some ads fed into your your browsing uh, stream, you can you'll actually get a lower price if you want none of their ads or or no, it's not that it's uh, for them to capture some of your data and, you know, do, you know, and share that data with their partners, with their partner companies, uh, you'll get a lower price. If you don't want them monitoring your data, your, your usage, then you have to pay a higher price. See, it's a different, it's not a, it's not a perfect analog, but like, that's disgusting to me because they are a public utility in all but sort of classification. It's certainly in the way that we rely on them and we use them. And we paid to build that. <laughs> they, no, I know. They, like they, they shouldn't be charging us for access to the thing that we paid to build. I, I understand it's the same thing as like the FCC is supposed to, you know, uh, uh, provide uh, oversight of the, the airwaves, which belong to the the people. But it turns out, that no, they sell them to the highest bidder and get in cahoots. I really sound like a conspiracy theorist and I need to stop, but it's, it's, um, yeah, I, I don't, I, cause at a certain point, like this stuff, they're going to know where you are. So the car is going to know that I'm driving past the Dunkin' Donuts and it's going to know that I've stopped there before. And it's going to give me something on the instrument cluster or the HUD or whatever that says like, Hey, get a, get a discount on your, on a coffee, stop now. And that's going to annoy me to no end. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like, I, I, I understand I work in advertising, so I'm part of the problem. <laughs> you like, are the problem. I, I like, 
really are we is this necessary to uh, I, don't know, I don't know i'm just i'm not coming up with anything but questions so i'm just gonna stop but it's yeah it's a it no, is an but, interesting but, question but, yeah i mean the you know what ben has raised here are very legitimate questions and you know they're they're topics that are under significant discussion right now in the industry trying to figure out you know how how far can they go with this? How much revenue can they generate? And, you know, I mean, there is the potential to generate huge revenues from this. Uh, you know, I mean, we're, we're talking many tens of billions of dollars in potential revenue um, that can be generated off the data that's, that's coming off of these vehicles. And, you know, I mean, nobody's going to want to give that up, especially if, it, if we're in an environment where companies are selling fewer vehicles to consumers you know they've got to make up for that somewhere, um, and the the revenue that's has generated off this data is one of the key things that they're looking at. So yeah. expect expect to have less privacy, and you know your 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 data is going to be shared, and um, there's probably not a whole lot you can do about it unless you just buy an old car. Yep, that's great. <laughs> maybe you could just wrap the the uh, antennas in tinfoil you know <laughs> or get some just pry the shark fins yeah. off the roof you know some some lead sheet uh you know just stuff like that'll work for a little while and then um the shenanigans will stop working when like the car won't function if it doesn't have a data connection well and that's you know that's a very realistic proposition yep uh, and it, 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 we're it's easy to fall into that sort of dystopian sort of worst case scenario. Maybe it'll be fine. Maybe it'll be great. It'll all get sorted out and, and we'll all benefit from it in, in ways we have yet to imagine. So uh, we can end on an optimistic note, I or, suppose. Or, or on the other hand, in the words of Johnny Lieberman, we're doomed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, hey, look, life is fatal, so we'll figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I think uh, speaking of fatal, we've killed another podcast. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, so do thanks for listening. We'll try to pull the schedule ahead and, and make sure we're, we're on the normal weekly schedule uh, in the coming few weeks. Please uh, let us know uh, if there's anything you want us to cover. You can reach out to us on Twitter or um, the Facebook page, Wheel Bearing Media on Facebook. Um, we have an email as well. Uh, which... There's a link on the site. Okay, uh, good, because I couldn't remember. You, can, you just click on the link and, and then you can send us an email or, or uh, drop us a, a question in Twitter at uh, Wheel Bearings Cast with... Uh, uh, all, all but the last A, uh, all the all the vowels except the last A gone. Um, and what else? Uh, you know, review us on iTunes or you know wherever you happen to be listening to us, and uh, tell all your friends to subscribe to the show too. So yeah, we'll see everybody next week. All right, bye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan 
planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.